Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Healthcare providers that practice in acute care settings are commonly involved in medication selection and dosing for patients undergoing rapid sequence intubation, or RSI. There is an abundance of literature surrounding RSI pre-medications, induction therapy, and paralytic choices and dosing in the RSI patient population. Today, Dr. Alicia Matson, an emergency medicine pharmacist, takes our breath away with a review of RSI literature, specifically focusing on historical teachings that have been proven incorrect and newer teachings that have become popular in practice. I want to imagine that you're, if you're a pharmacist, you're carrying the code B pager and an extremist in the ED goes off. The ED pharmacist has a, another code blue that they're attending and they need your help. So you show up in the recess room, the ED resident um, scrambles to you and says, I think we're gonna need to intubate this patient. I just read something and I wanna give this patient rocuronium um, and ketamine, but I wanna give the rocuronium first and I wanna do half dose ketamine. How are you gonna respond to that conversation? I'm hoping by the end of this presentation, you'll have the tools uh, to be able to have an effective conversation about choosing appropriate paralytic and induction agents for patients for RSI. Here are the objectives for today's presentation. When we're thinking about the procedure of RSI or rapid sequence intubation, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, we think about the tools that the team is going to use to do the actual intubation. We think about oxygenating the patient, positioning them appropriately in the bed. But there's also a lot of pharmacotherapy that goes into it. When I think about it, I think of four distinct times that we're going to think about medications in RSI. We think about optimizing the patient before we intubate them. In the ideal world, maybe we could give them a medication that would stop them from needing intubation, like Narcan if it's an opioid overdose. But oftentimes we need to intubate the patient. So how can we set them up for success, for successfully getting intubated and not having any adverse effects from that intubation? Next, we think about induction or sedating a patient prior to us giving a paralytic to uh, set them up for uh, uh, optimal intubating conditions. And then after they're intubated, we need to think about post-intubation sedation. So those four categories we'll talk a little bit about today. So you're back in this recess room um, waiting for your patient to show up, and they roll in the room. EMS pushes them in, and they look sick. Um, they're on BiPAP, um, the patient's fairly obtunded. Uh, EMS starts to give you a story as they, they move the patient over um, to the cot. So it's a 68-year-old female um, who EMS was called to because she was having shortness of breath. Some uh, pertinent past medical history, the patient was just admitted to an outside hospital um, a couple days ago, but she left AMA because they wouldn't let her smoke. She had pneumonia and a COPD exacerbation. Since being home, she's had continued increased uh, shortness of breath, and she finally called EMS today. When they arrived, she was hypoxic into the 60s, um, which improved after putting her on BiPAP and giving her some duonebs. But over the course of the transport here, she's become increasingly somnolent um, and had some episodes of hypoxia. When they hook the patient up to the monitor, this is what you see. So she's tachycardic. She's extremely hypotensive and having episodes of hypoxia. 
is the patient that scares me when we're going to intubate them. So well, they have looked specifically at patient-specific risk factors that um, are associated with peri-intubation or after the patient is intubating them having a cardiac arrest. So that's what we sort of focus on when we're looking at optimal ways to, to take care of these patients, which medication we're choosing, looking at one, their incidence of peri-intubation, cardiac arrest, and then those factors associated with it. So consistently, by looking at different patient population, they have found that shock index is associated with increased peri-intubation cardiac arrest. So patients with a high shock index are more likely to have a cardiac arrest after intubation. Now what the shock index is, is just the heart rate, patient's heart rate, divided by their systolic blood pressure. So the higher the heart rate, the lower the blood pressure, the sicker the patient is, the more likely they are to have a, a cardiac arrest. And this is uh, looking at ICU patients, ED patients, and out-of-hospital patients. So our thought is that if we can help improve their shock index before we intubate them, we can potentially decrease their risk of having a cardiac arrest. Ways we can do this, get IV access, give them fluids, start your vasopressors before we intubate them, try to get their blood pressure higher before we do the actual intubation procedure. Other things that we found associated um, with peri-intubation cardiac arrest is not being able to get the tube down the first time. So optimizing our ability to have first-pass success, which involves which medications we select for intubation and different tools that they're going to use for intubation. And then making sure these patients are oxygenated. So giving them um, oxygen before we start the intubation procedure to try and saturate their hemoglobin with oxygen. So we've started fluids in this patient. We have a, a norepi running peripherally. We're, we're seeing some improvements in her blood pressure. So we're moving on to try and determine which agent we want to give um, for induction for her. So this is our first assessment question. So what induction agent would you choose for this patient? Um, a, propofol, B, atomidate, C, ketamine, or D, midazolam? You can respond uh, in the Poll Everywhere app, um, and the code is MayoRx, or you can text MayoRx to 22333 and select A, B, C, or D. Let's see, most people selected Atomidate and Ketamine, which I agree with, and we'll talk a little bit more about now. So currently, when we think of agents that are used for induction, the three most common ones are going to be Ketamine, Propofol, and Atomidate. Now, uh, within the ED specifically, we don't use propofol very often. The reason being is when we give large bolus doses of propofol, we are concerned about decreasing the patient's blood pressure. And we're already concerned about that, especially in like a patient we have in the recess room right now, right? They're already hypotensive. We don't want to exacerbate that. Both within our practice here at Mayo and nationally in general, propofol isn't used commonly in the ED. That leaves us with ketamine and atomidate. So when we think about what we want for an optimal induction agent, we think about a medication that's going to work reliably, it's going to work fast, it's not going to have a lot of adverse effects like propofol might have, and probably is not going to last too terribly long. That can be up for debate. So ketamine works reliably. We use it for lots of different things in the ED, RSI being one of them. In general, we're taught anywhere from 1.5 to 2 mg per kg. IV pushes our induction dose of ketamine for RSI. And when we've learned about ketamine, we've learned that um, potentially ketamine causes this catecholamine surge, increasing patients' heart rate and blood pressure, which in a patient that we have today would be helpful. In a patient that um, might already be hypertensive and we're trying to lower their blood pressure, or is having a dysrhythmia um, might not be super helpful. 
When we think of Atomidate, Atomidate, uh, when given for RSI, again, works pretty fast, 30 seconds to a minute, doesn't last for very long, five, maybe 10 minutes, um, and works fairly reliably. The dose we're taught for Atomidate is 0.3 mg per kg, given as an IV push. And in general, we think of Atomidate as fairly hemodynamically neutral. We don't expect it to increase the blood pressure. We don't expect it to decrease. They've done um, some more uh, studies looking specifically at Atomidate versus ketamine, looking at their hemodynamic profile, and found that maybe in some patients, ketamine isn't actually protective. Maybe it's not going to increase patients' blood pressure. And so maybe it's, it's not going to perform as we, we maybe have thought before. So we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. Um, the first study I want to talk about is the use of ketamine in the pre-hospital setting. So this was a prospective observational study done um, in Australia. And they looked at all of their intubations that they did with ketamine as the induction agent. And they broke patients up based off of their shock index, right? So the patients with a high shock index, and they used a cutoff of 0.9. You'll see varying cutoffs in literature, uh, mostly between 0.8 and 0.9 is sort of the cutoff for when patients um, become higher risk for the peri-intubation cardiac arrest. They used 0.9. Patients with a higher shock index expect them to be a little bit sicker, uh, at higher risk for potentially um, peri-intubation arrest. And they compared their rates of peri-intubation hypotension. You can see, looking at the demographics, that these patients were mostly patients with um, being intubated because they had a head injury or were combative. They weren't all septic patients. Um, and the ketamine dose between the two groups didn't differ and is pretty much our standard ketamine dose. When we look at rates of peri-intubation hypotension, you see a significant difference in patients with a high shock index versus a low shock index. The theory behind that is these patients who have a high shock index are catecholamine depleted. They're sick. They've been using all their catecholamines to try to keep their blood pressure up, to fight their sepsis or whatever is going on. And so you're not getting any additional catecholamine release uh, when you're giving ketamine. Um, and so they still continue to be at risk for peri-intubation hypotension. The rates they saw were 26% in patients with a high shock index compared to just 2% of patients with a low shock index. Looking specifically at ED literature, now a lot of the ED literature around RSI comes from evaluation of this NEAR database. The NEAR database is the National Emergency Airway Registry, and 20-some academic health centers input all of their intubations from the ED into this database, and then it is mined for research like this. And they looked at rates of peri-intubation hypotension, when they were comparing patients who received either Atomidate or ketamine for induction. Now, they look specifically at normotensive patients. So these patients who have a blood pressure of a systolic reading between 100 or 139 pre-intubation. Now, this group was not specifically balanced. Um, they had over 6,000 patients who received Atomidate and about 780 patients who received ketamine. When they looked at rates of peri-intubation hypotension, which was defined as a systolic blood pressure of less than 100, um, they found that it was, uh, they saw peri-intubation hypotension more often in the ketamine group compared to the atomidate group. When uh, doing uh, logistic regression, um, they found an odds ratio that was also significant, specifically for ketamine causing or being associated with peri-intubation hypotension. One thought um, when they were looking at this group was that they might have selected patients to receive ketamine if they were potentially higher risk or septic beforehand. This registry, you mark 
a patient whether you think they are septic or not. So they looked at specifically patients with suspected sepsis, and they found that patients with suspected sepsis were twice as likely to receive ketamine as opposed to etomidate. When they looked at treatment for hypotension, which was, did they require vasopressors? Did they require fluid bolus or, or blood transfusion after intubation within 30 minutes? They found that it was more often needed in patients who received ketamine. Specifically looking at first pass success, they saw no difference between these groups. Another study looking at the NEAR database that was published at the same time, again, comparing Atomidate to ketamine. Now they looked specifically at septic patients. So those patients that were marked as presumed or suspected sepsis in the registry and compared Atomidate to ketamine. So they had 363 patients in their Atomidate group and 140 in their ketamine group. When they looked again at peri-intubation hypotension, they found it was much more common in patients who received ketamine compared to patients who received Atomidate. That again showed true when they looked at treatment for hypotension. And again, they found no difference in first-pass success. Um, there's one study looking at Atomidate versus ketamine in trauma patients. And it was a retrospective review after they adjusted their protocol at this institution from Atomidate being their standard for induction to ketamine being their standard for induction. They didn't specifically look at peri-intubation hypotension like these other studies have, but they did look at in-hospital mortality and found no difference, along with rates of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. So now, thinking about choosing between ketamine and Atomidate, I think historically we've thought that ketamine might be protective in our hypotensive patients, but the more evidence that comes out, albeit retrospective reviews of registry, um, is showing that potentially we, we shouldn't expect ketamine to prevent peri-intubation hypotension, and it might not be a reason to select ketamine over Atomidate. So we've talked about choosing between the two induction agents. What about the dose of the induction agent? Do we follow what we read in micrometics or have seen in review articles? Uh, what about what we see in tweets? So as Twitter has become more popular and foam has become more popular, we're seeing a lot more of these sort of opinion-based pieces backed with some literature. This is the one that I wanted to talk about a little bit because it's gained a fair amount of attention and has been integrated into clinical practice a fair amount. Specifically looking at point two, so this is a tweet saying how I should take care of a patient who is hypotension prior to intubating them. And this provider advocates for a low-dose sedative followed by a high-dose paralytic. So I think especially as pharmacists, this makes us twinge a little bit. Um, and this has been followed up with, with a blog post, which I'm going to talk a little bit about. Um, within the blog post, the evidence that he cites for the benefits of a low-dose sedative are as follows. So they talk, he talked a little bit about the Miller study that I just talked about, which was the ketamine pre-hospital, stating that standard-dose ketamine causes peri-intubation hypotension. I don't necessarily think you can say that based off of that study. Um, and there, within that study, there was no specific dose comparison comparing hypotensive rates to a lower-dose ketamine and whether that would have been helpful at all. He also talked about hypotension being linked to cardiac arrest with intubation, which we know. We know the patients who are hypotensive, who have a high shock index prior to intubation, are, are more likely to have a peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Again, none of that is specifically associated with a medication dose. And then he also cited two case reports um, of, a pa of two patients who received ketamine as an induction agent and subsequently had a peri-intubation cardiac arrest. 
since this blog post has come out, there has been um, a couple of studies looking at comparing doses of induction agent to peri-intubation hypotension. So this study was done in South Korea. It was a retrospective registry study, similar to how we do our NEAR database reviews um, here in the United States. It's just a South Korean database. And they looked at three different induction agents. So they looked at ketamine, etomidate, and midazolam. They set sort of standard doses of such, which is, again, very uh, similar to what we do here. So ketamine 1.5, etomidate 0.3 mg per kg, and midazolam 0.1 mg per kg. And then they broke it up into three different groups. So those patients that received a reduced dose, a standard dose, and an, what they called an overdose or a higher dose of their induction agent based on the percentage that they received compared to that standard dose and their body weight. When they tried to find um, within this group any association with peri-intubation hypotension and a logistic regression model, they found no association with the medication dose that the patient received for induction to their risk of peri-intubation hypotension. They did find patients with an elevated shock index greater than 0.8 to have an increased association of peri-intubation hypotension which is similar to other studies that we have seen. They had a fairly expansive definition of peri-intubation hypotension, um, including a systolic uh, drop of 20%. Um, need for vasopressor or any increased dose of vasopressor was included in their definition for hypotension. They also found that increased age greater than 70 was associated with an increased risk of peri-intubation hypotension. Going back to the NEAR database, so the first one that I talked about where they were looking at ketamine versus etomidate in normotensive patients, they had a predefined analysis looking at doses of those medications. So they looked at a ketamine dose less than or equal to one meg per kg versus greater than one meg per kg, and etomidate less than or equal to 0.3 versus greater than 0.3, and they found no specific association um, with peri-intubation hypotension or need for treatment of that hypotension between the two specific doses. So based on that, um, which agent and which dose would you choose for our patient in the recess bay right now? Ketamine at 0.5 megs per kg, Ketamine at 1.5 mg per kg, Atomidate 0.15 mg per kg, or Atomidate 0.3 mg per kg. So it looks like so far all of you have chosen D, Atomidate 0.3 mg per kg, and I don't disagree. I think you could argue that ketamine at 1.5 mg per kg is also an appropriate agent for this patient. And I want to talk a little bit about what that author says he meant with that tweet, um, and he breaks it down a little bit more in the blog post. So. What he is adv advocating for is, to some extent, a delayed sequence intubation where you give a low dose of, let's say, ketamine at 0.5 mg per kg. You give it time to work. You see if the patient is sedated. If not, you give more. Once the patient is sedated, you give a paralytic. Well, that's not what he says in the short tweet. Um, and things like that get taken as fact and gets brought into clinical practice. Um, and in general, when we're practicing RSI in the emergency department, that's not how we do it. We give the induction agent and immediately follow it with the paralytic. We don't have time to assess whether they're sedated or not. So unless you're doing it that way, you shouldn't be using reduced dose induction agents. So we decided to give this patient atomidate 0.3 mg per kg. Now we need to figure out what we're going to give for a paralytic. So if we think about our two options or most common options for um, paralytics in RSI, we think about rocuronium and succinylcholine. 
An ideal paralytic agent would work fast, probably wouldn't last too terribly long, but some would argue differently than that. And then it wouldn't have a lot of adverse effects. Succinylcholine has, standard, has been sort of the gold standard paralytic agent. Dosing is usually around 1.5 megs per kg. Uh, succinylcholine works pretty fast. We should have paralysis in less than 60 seconds and doesn't last for very long. So 10 minutes-ish, depending on your patient. We are concerned about some side effects for succinylcholine. It's a depolarizing neuromuscular junction blocker. We get concerned about hyperkalemia and malignant hyperthermia, to name a few. And some advocate because of those side effects that we should not be using succinylcholine. We should just use rocuronium for everybody. Now, some will say there's no side effects for rocuronium. In general, there's not any immediate side effects like we think of with succinylcholine. Rocuronium works a little bit different. So it's a, a non-depolarizing neuromuscular junction blocker. And depending on the dose you gave, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But rocuronium has historically been thought to take longer to work. And that's why it sucks might be a little bit better um, because it's going to work faster and be able to intubate that patient faster. Rocuronium might take longer to work, but it also has a significantly longer duration of action. So compared to our patient who receives succinylcholine who's paralyzed for 10 minutes, a patient that receives rocuronium could be paralyzed for over an hour which can have implications in our need for sedation, our ability to get a neuro exam, depending on our indication for intubation of these patients. So how do we choose? Like I said, succinylcholine has historically been the, the gold standard, and there's some evidence behind this. So in 2015, there was an updated Cochrane review specifically looking at succinylcholine versus rocuronium. They included um, all studies who gave at least 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium and at least one milligram per kilogram of succinylcholine. And they found in general, so their primary outcome was excellent intubating conditions, and they found that in general, succinylcholine tended to provide a stronger likelihood of having excellent intubating conditions. Since that study, we've had a, another one published looking at that near database, and they looked at succinylcholine versus rocuronium, and the first pass success. Um, so the ability to get the endotracheal tube down the first time the team tries. And that's a, it's a generally accepted surrogate marker for, for the studies in RSI. And they found in general, first pass success was similar between rocuronium and succinylcholine. When they did a logistic regression to try and find any association with increased first pass success, the only association they found was rocuronium dosing. So they found that patients who received at least 1.2 mg per kg of rocuronium compared to a patient who received less than 1.2 mg per kg of rocuronium had a higher incidence of first-pass success. So this is one of the first studies really looking at dosing of rocuronium with patient-specific outcomes and has sort of been the impetus towards recommendations to do higher dose um, rocuronium and paralytics in some of these patients. Now we talked about the dosing of, of the paralytic and, and the fact that with increased doses of ROC, we probably have similar intubating conditions to patients who receive succinylcholine. What about the timing of how we administer the paralytic? Now most of us have been taught that we give the induction agent first always. We never give the paralytic before we give the induction agent. But there, this concept of paralytic first has become more popular and gained some uptake into clinical practice. Talk about a couple of different things, first being another blog post. And this person uh, talks about the concept of what they have dubbed rocketamine, which is rocuronium 
prior to ketamine, as opposed to keteronium, which is ketamine prior to rocuronium. They have this very pretty graphic of the uh, pharmacokinetics of ketamine and rocuronium to explain their reasoning behind doing this. So you see ketamine in the blue, looking specifically at the onset of action of sedation with ketamine, compared to rocuronium, specifically looking at the onset of full paralysis. And what they are comparing is that red arrow, what they've called sedation lag time. So what they're saying is that the time from when the ketamine sedates the patient and they become apneic to when the rocuronium kicks in, the patient's paralyzed and they have good intubating conditions to try and intubate the patient. They're using that as a surrogate marker for, for safe apnea time. And safe apnea time is basically the time at which a patient can be sedated and apneic and not become hypoxic or arrest. So safe apnea time um, is going to vary depending on the patient that you have in front of you. Otherwise healthy patient who's in an outpatient OR getting intubated for an elective surgery is going to have a much longer safe apnea time than this patient we have here in the recess room who's hypoxic and sick and hypotensive. Hers is going to be tiny. And what they're advocating for is these specific patients who have an itty-bitty safe apnea time that potentially giving rocuronium prior to ketamine is beneficial. So again, they have a pretty little, little graphic to illustrate these perfect pharmacokinetics of these medications, showing that you're going to give rocuronium first. It's going to take 60 to 90 seconds to kick in. Immediately after you give the rock, you give the ketamine, which takes 30 to 45 seconds to kick in. And you still have onset of action of the ketamine before the patient is paralyzed. Now, in this graph, it looks like that. But I, I think in real life, it's not always going to look like that. Although we are, are taught that we give the first medication, we don't even flush uh, before we give the second medication, and then we flush after. They should be given one right after another. That doesn't always happen in clinical practice. Um, it can happen because of a breakdown of communication. We can have issues with the line, and if we don't have a second line, how are we going to give that second medication? And then, though these pharmacokinetics look pretty, it doesn't always happen that way in real patients, right? If they're septic, hypotensive, not perfusing well, the onset of action is going to be different. Depending on the doses that we're using, it depends on how, when things kick in um, and how long they last. So though in here they say up to 90 seconds before the rocuronium kicks in, it's going to depend on the dose that we give of the patient. So this was a study um, that was actually published back in the 90s in anesthesiology where they compared onset of action of paralytics, and they did three different doses of rocuronium. So they did 0.6 mg per kg, 0.9 mg per kg, and 1.2. They compared this to succinylcholine and vecuronium. Um, I put succinylcholine up here for reference for today. So as you can see, with increasing doses of rocuronium, you get increasing onset of action of paralysis. So at 1.2 mg per kg, these patients are paralyzed in less than 60 seconds. In the teachings, especially in EM, they will say that there is no such thing as an overdose of paralytic, and they are advocating for even higher doses of rocuronium. So these patients are getting 1.5 mg per kg. Well, what's the onset of action of that? What if we're giving this patient 1.5 mg per kg, there was a slight delay in giving them the ketamine following it, and these patients become paralyzed before they're sedated? 
I also want to pay attention to the, the duration of action for these doses. So 0.6 mg per kg of rocuronium paralyzed the patient on average for 37 minutes. But when we got to higher doses, these patients were paralyzed for over 70 minutes. We need to think about this when we're thinking about post-intubation sedation. So not only do we have blog posts about this, but we have some literature. So our colleagues up at Hennepin County Medical Center published this study. Um, it was a prospective study where they were evaluating the use of bougie for intubating patients, and they collected this additional data that they then evaluated. So they have a standard of practice where they often do paralytic first. So the patients, some they broke them down into whether they received a sedative first or a paralytic first. That was up to the discretion of the provider. And then they evaluated the time it took to intubate the patient. So that time was determined from when the last medication was given, whether that was a paralytic or an induction agent, to when they removed the blade from the patient's mouth after they were intubated. And they're basically using that as a marker of apnea time. You can see that although we talked about rocketamine prior, they didn't specifically use that. Most of the patients actually received automidate for induction, which has different pharmacokinetics than ketamine. And then most of them received succinylcholine as their paralytic, though they did use a fair amount of rock. The difference that they found was six seconds. So they found that patients who received a paralytic first were intubated an average six seconds faster than your patients who received a sedative first. So the question is, is that clinically significant? You will hear people argue that it is. I think that maybe a, a one in a million patient, it would matter. Um, but I don't think we have enough evidence to say that this is an appropriate practice. We don't know what the incidence of awareness of paralysis is for these patients. And that can be just as detrimental um, as the patient being apneic. Moving on to our next assessment question, thinking about the patient that we have in our recess room right now, what paralytic and order of administration would you recommend for our patient? Succinylcholine at 1.5 mg per kg given first, rock at 0.6 mg per kg given first, rock at 1.2 mg per kg given second, or succinylcholine at 1 mg per kg given second? looks like most of you chose C as your answer. And I overall agree. I think C or D is an appropriate answer for this patient. In general, I don't think that we should be giving um, paralytics first. If we're going to use ROC, we probably should use a little bit higher dose ROC at 1.2 mg per kg. So we've come up with a plan for our induction and our paralysis of this patient. We give those medications. The team successfully intubates the patient. And what's next? Can't do a talk on RSI without talking about post-intubation sedation because it's important. A recent study was published this year in Academic Emergency Medicine looking at post-intubation sedation and, and awareness of paralysis. So it was a prospective uh, study of over 300 patients at a single center. They looked at all the patients that got intubated in the ED and surveyed them after extubation to determine if they had any awareness specifically of the paralysis during intubation. They found that 2.9% of patients had awareness, which is a small number, but it's more than we should have. When they looked at what was associated with patients having awareness of paralysis, they found that rocuronium use at any time was associated with these patients having awareness. Now, this is not the first study that has found this. There was one study where they looked at time to sedation. 
um, for patients who got intubated in the ED, and they found that patients who received rocuronium on average had a longer time to getting a sedative medication than patients who received succinylcholine, likely because they're paralyzed for longer. They're not moving. They're not telling them that they need a sedative. The one thing that they did find was associated with a faster time to sedation was the presence of a pharmacist at the intubation. So it's important to, uh, for us to be aware of what paralytic the patient is given or has gotten and to ensure that there's a plan for post-intubation sedation for these patients. So in review, we talked uh, today about optimizing our patient for intubation, making sure we can uh, improve their shock index before we intubate them to try and decrease their, their rate of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. We talked about choosing and dosing of an induction agent, choosing and dosing of a paralytic agent in which order to give them, and the importance of, of giving these patients post-intubation sedation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.